Hello and welcome to this, the first Q&A session for the History of the Germans podcast. Thank you all for taking part and sending in questions. I really enjoyed getting them and I even had some fun answering them. Just some logistics. I did have to group some questions together that were replicated or they belonged so closely together and sometimes I even shortened them. So apologies if I'm not reading out the exact text of your question. I also thought to bundle them into themes, i.e. the podcast in general, specific questions about the Ottonians, and there's even a special section about languages, since that attracted a lot of interest, and finally a section on the German history more broadly. Okay, let's start with question one. Will you cover the decline of the Weimar Republic and the rise of Hitler in the podcast? Well, absolutely. It will take a long time to get there. Maybe I'll make it around the 90th anniversary of Hitler coming to power, which would be January 30th, 2023. Maybe it will take even longer. Second question, again from various, um, including HS. Why in English will there be a German version? First up, after 20 years speaking and writing mostly in English, I simply cannot express myself as easily in German as I can in English. And secondly, the main objective is to make German history more accessible and better understood across the world, which would be a lot harder if I did it in German. That being said, maybe I will do a German version at some point. A question from JL. Have you considered publishing it as a book? I did for a little while. However, a book and a podcast are two very different things. That means I cannot just publish my transcripts, which, by the way, are all available on my website. If I do not publish the transcripts, writing a book would mean doing a lot of it again and probably in a lot more detail. So I will stick with Mike Duncan's approach on this as well as on all other things, meaning I may do a book at some point, but one on a specific subject, not on the whole of German history. This is from Misty and Stone. Your new website is brilliant. Are you still going to post the pictures on Facebook? It's so lovely to see them in my newsfeed. No worries, I will still publish on Facebook. However, not everyone likes Facebook, and to give you a chance to escape from Mr. Zuckerberg's clutches, I publish all the posts on the website as a blog post. So the second set of topics is around the Ottonian dynasty, and it starts with Dan Newnham's question. How has the Ottonian period influenced how, alternative one, Germans are perceived in the English-speaking West in modern times, and b, Germans are compared to English-speaking Western peoples? Or any variation of the above you feel works best. First up, thank you for your questions, Dan. I think these are really great ones. So as for part one, i.e. how the Ottonians have changed the way the Germans are perceived in the Anglo-Saxon West today, it is fair to say that they did not have much influence. As far as I can make out from my circle of friends and from the responses I had to my podcast, the Ottonian period is very little known. And that is not much of a surprise, since there was little interaction between Germany and England, let alone Wales, Scotland and Ireland, during the 10th century. Yes, Otto I was married to a granddaughter of King Alfred the Great, but the first actual meeting only happens at the coronation of the first Salian Emperor Conrad II, which was attended by King Canute. 
As for part two, i.e. the question, how have decisions in the Ottonian period shaped German history and identity compared to the Anglo-Saxons, well, there's obviously a very long list of things. I would like to highlight one extremely prosaic but hugely important difference, and that is taxes. In the 10th century, the English were only able to hold back the Vikings by paying the so-called Danegeld, i.e. paying them money to go away. To cover that expenditure, the English kings did introduce general and direct taxation. The king's subjects accepted that as the only way to avoid being raped and murdered. These taxes were still being raised after King Canute took over, even though he was a Viking himself, and the whole point of him being king was to end the risk of being raped and murdered. After the Norman conquest, the new rulers kept taxation going. By then the English were so used to taxation, they didn't really question it. Being able to raise taxes, even if it later required the consent of Parliament, made the English kings the richest monarchs in Europe. They could raise large armies, pay off their magnates, maintain a stable currency and invest in commerce. On the other hand, the Germans did not have as much trouble from the Vikings, their bane were the Hungarians. In the early 10th century, it seems German rulers had arrangements similar to the Danegeld with the Hungarians. So for instance, in 926 to 933, King Henry the Fowler agreed to pay them tribute. If you remember his speech before he did break that arrangement, Henry said that he had to raise taxes to pay the Magyars off. Now where the story diverges is when Henry the Fowler and later Otto I made the mistake of defeating the Magyars in the battle on the Lechfeld. That ended their Hungarian raids for good, but on the other hand, it also ended the justification to raise direct taxes from German subjects. On top of that, the Ottonian rulers felt that they were rich, since they had the income from the silver mines in Goslar, had control over the church property and still sizable personal and royal domain. And hence the Ottonians did not create a taxation system for the royal infrastructure. As we will see, this reliance on the personal property of the king emperor, the church and the ever-dwindling royal domain left the central power weak, much weaker than the kings of England and France who could rely on taxation. As the centre shrunk, the empire became a mixed monarchy of competing principalities that was unable to raise large armies or maintain a stable currency, let alone invest in commerce or shipping. The consequences of that are manifold. On the downside, the political weakness of Germany has left the nation with a chip on its shoulder that contributed to the nationalist excesses of the 19th and 20th century. On the positive side, Fragmentation meant that not everything that happens in Germany happens in Berlin. There are many regional centers, be it Munich, Hamburg, Cologne, Frankfurt and many more, that can stand on their own in an international context. And now we get to three great questions from viscous dissipation. Question 1. Even before the Etonians started favoring the Imperial Church Eigenkirchen system, I was amazed how strong the political position of the church was, with bishops ruling cities, peasants paying tithe and monasteries owning land and tenants. I don't think I can give you really a full rundown of church power before the Ottonian period. That would sort of stretch my ability a bit too far. However, what I do know is 
that political interference by the church traces back all the way to the days of Constantine. You might remember that initially the emperor was called upon to resolve the conflicts between the different interpretations of the Christian faith, which culminated in the Council of Nicaea. And a little later, there was the Bishop Ambrose of Milan, who really was a major mover and shaker in the late empire. At some point, he went as far as excommunicating the Emperor Theodosius, who in 390 had to come to his church in simple clothes and repent his sins. If you go into the Dark Ages, the church is probably the heir of the Roman Empire insofar as they took over what was left of the Imperial Roman infrastructure. So one sign of that is that the diocese, i.e. that's the districts a bishopric is responsible for, essentially mirror the diocese that the empire created in the 3rd and 4th century as administrative districts. Under the Carolingians, the role of the church strengthened further, mainly because they were the only ones who could read and write. And that mattered in a society that was increasingly dependent on paper trails to prove ownership or responsibilities. And a bit later, we find that eminent churchmen would quite blatantly falsify documents to prove that their diocese would own this or that plot of land or have this or that little privilege. There's a great book by Levi Roach called Forgery and Memory at the End of the First Millennium that looks at some of these cases. Now, when we talk about genuine power on the ground, start with the cities. Now, the cities during the Dark Ages were often left empty because after centuries of war and destruction, in particular the destruction of the water supplies, just simply couldn't hold that many people. The bishops had remained in the cities, mainly because that's where their churches were and their relics. And so, in the absence of any rival authority on location, they simply took over. And then we have the monasteries. Now the Carolingian emperors, and Charlemagne in particular, founded them as a spearhead to promote Christianity on newly conquered lands, particularly in Saxony. The monasteries received land and slaves or serfs as a means to fund the operation, simply because there was no other way to fund such an operation. The local lords then made donations to the monasteries, either to prove to the emperor that they were really becoming Christians, or sometimes they were indeed believers and gave it for the benefit of their souls. The second question was, if I understand correctly, in Henry the Fowler's days, there was a broad analogy between duchies and German tribal divisions. But what is it that made the Saxons, the Eastern Lothringian Franks, the Bavarians and the Swabians to come together relatively easily and to also want to stick together? whereas the Lombards, the Burgundians and the Western Franks seem to have fought hard to avoid being subsumed, even at the heyday of Otto the Great's imperial prestige. Okay, there are probably as many opinions on that as there are historians. The older historiography, particularly in the 19th century, favoured a sort of cultural national explanation along the lines of they shared the same language and culture and that is why they're stuck together. I'm quite sceptical about that. By the 10th century, national identity was a lot lower down the identity pyramid than it is today. I believe it had much more to do with the projection of power and the benefits people, and in particular high aristocrats, saw in getting engaged with the empire. That is again speculation on my part, because the contemporary sources give little indication of the motivations of the protagonists. 
All we can do is divine the motivations from the actions of the leaders of the different stem duchies. That further includes the assumption that these dukes did not all act on their own accord, but acted with the consent of their respective counts and other aristocrats. So let's start with the alliance between the Saxons and the Franconians in 919 that got the whole thing started. That was clearly realpolitik, rather than a sudden outburst of brotherly love, since the Franconians realized that they could not go it alone, and the price of Saxon support may well have been the crown. As the Ottonian century progressed, Franconia lost its duke in the rebellion of Eberhard and was made a core territory of royal power and presence. Therefore, Saxonia and Franconia both benefited from the arrangement as it gave them access to the king empress, who were spending most of their time in this territory. As for the Swabians' Bavarians, the situation is very different. Before Henry II, the king empress spent very little time in these areas. The initial deal struck by Henry the Fowler was explicitly submission for non-interference. That was, however, temporary. Under Otto I, the right of investiture of bishops moved from the dukes to the king. Royal influence expanded first by investing close family members as dukes, and then through the imperial church system. As for Bavaria specifically, the Henrys subjugated the locals brutally, in particular in the wake of Ludolf's revolt. With the rise of royal influence came more engagement of the Bavarians and Swabians in the royal imperial institutions, which tied them closer to the initial Saxon-Franconian alliance. Under Henry II, Bavaria became one of the centers of imperial presence, and as we will see under the Hohenstaufen Empress, Swabia will become a royal center. Now that picture is different in Lothringia, Burgundy and Italy. Though the Ottonians were nominally in charge there, they found it difficult to penetrate power structures as deeply as they did in Swabia and Bavaria. In Lothringia, the bishops of Toul, Metz and Liege were given more and more resources in the hope to keep the opposing nobles down. But with the French king on the other side offering aid, the local aristocrats were able to remain much more independent than in the four key duchies. That, however, does not mean they fought hard against imperial power. It was just easier for them not to be subsumed. To talk about the Lombards as a stem in the same way as the Bavarians or Swabians is difficult. The Lombards were a relatively small warband that occupied a territory largely inhabited by a Roman population. By the 10th century, they had largely integrated and had been left to their own devices for most of the 9th and the first half of the 10th century, occasionally providing the emperors themselves. Even more importantly, the social structure in Lombardy was already quite different from north of the Alps. Cities were larger and more important. And the lower aristocracy was often based in the cities, and they teamed up with the lower classes against the bishops and the magnates whenever appropriate. So when the Ottonians tried the same church-based policy in Italy they had implemented in Germany, there was a lot less successful in penetrating the power structures. As for Burgundy, it may have been an adjunct to Otto the Great's reign, but only fully joined the empire under Conrad II about 50 years later. By that time, the Burgundian kings had already become a weak central power, their royal demean had shrunk, and the local aristocratic clans enjoyed a large degree of independence. When the empress took over, 
they had many other problems to deal with, so filed Burgundy under the too difficult box. Last and final, the Western Franks. Again, hard to see what went through their heads from contemporary sources. But if I were, for instance, a major lord in northern France, I would be quite keen to keep my weak little king in Laon or Paris and would not want to swap him for a powerful emperor like Otto the Great. Now, if I were Otto the Great, I would look at France and think, in their current state of disunity and perennial civil war, they are no danger to me at all. But if, on the other hand, I go in and start occupying their territory and call myself king, they will all gang up on me, and that would be a massive fight. So, better to leave things as they are. Bottom line is that the relative persistence of the alliance of the five German stems had less to do with any notion of national sentiment, which did not exist, but was mainly a function of political structures that allowed for different degrees of integration. Now the third question. Do the Teutones, Germans, Deutsche themselves have a notion of where the natural borders of the kingdom are? Do they even make a distinction between kingdom, i.e. the homeland of the Germans, and empire, as in Germans and other Germanic and Slavic tribes? Again, I'm afraid nobody really knows. My best guess is that the identity pyramid is family first, social strata second, stem duchy third, then, not much for a while, followed by Germany as the kingdom of East Francia, and then the empire. So, for example, Widukind talks on several occasions about Saxon high aristocrats like Wichmann Billung, who would fight with pagan Slavic tribes against their German compatriots, usually because of some awful insult or injustice they had received. But even though they were basically traitors, Widukind praises them highly for their military prowess and states that all Saxony was sad when they died. That suggests the identity and reputation of a person, in particular a high aristocrat, was much more a function of meeting the expectations of his social group rather than his nation, a word he would not have understood anyway. Secondly, the idea of borders, natural or otherwise, is also a modern invention. People in the 10th century thought much more in terms of tributes and obligations. A count would not look at a particular area and say, that is mine. He would say, these are my serfs, and they are working land I hold in fief from the king, whilst the right to hold a market is the bishops, and the courts are organized by the duke. I also hold some lands over across the river there in Poland, where I owe the ruler vassalage under such and such circumstances. The king would see himself in charge more of a people than a territory. The titles at the time were King of the Franks, King of the Lombards, etc., not King of France or King of Italy, even though I must admit I used these terms to help people to get a reference point. The emperor was a completely different kettle of fish. The emperor was above the kings and responsible for the whole of Christendom, in the same way as the pope is responsible for the whole of Christendom. And that meant that as Christendom had no borders and keeps spreading, the emperor also had no borders, natural or otherwise. As for the distinction between Germany and Empire, one could argue that in particular the later Ottonian period, fewer secular lords joined the Italian campaigns, whilst the bishops, who had bigger obligations towards the emperor, provided the bulk of the armies. 
But I do not think you can interpret that as a political stance along the lines of people were caring more about Germany than the empire. It is much more likely a prosaic reason. The secular lords may not like to support the emperor in Italy, but were perfectly happy to expand the empire eastwards. The difference is less about nationalism than about the fact that tribute from the Slavs was relatively easy to come by, whilst the Italian campaigns were notoriously unrewarding, plus you had a good chance of dying from malaria and the like. Again, we have to be really careful to project our mindset of nation-states and cultural identity and supranational entities onto the 10th century. These are words and concepts they simply did not know and did not care much about. Now a question from Nima Vasali. I just would like to know if in their dynasty they had any other names than the Ottonians. From back of my head I recall many years ago I read a book titled History of Europe in the Middle Ages, in which their royal house was called the House of Saxony. Yes, of course, the, the Ottonians are sometimes called the Saxon kings or the House of Saxony, but even more often they're called the Ludolfinger, after their ancestor Ludolf, the father of Otto the Venerable and grandfather of Henry the Fowler. I personally think the latter name is more appropriate, since that all kings and emperors of the dynasty were called Otto, nor were they all descended from Otto. Then a question from Ken Shimkoviak. I am very interested in what you can tell us about day-to-day -day life of peasants and city dwellers in the 1000 AD era. On the question of the life of the common man, I did try to pour in all I could find into the episodes about Germany in the year 1000. As it happens, we have little information about life in villages or cities during the 10th century. Chroniclers barely ever mention the peasants and city dwellers even less. What we also know far too little about is the legal position of peasants during that time. It's assumed that the genuine slave labor model of ancient Roman estates had been gradually replaced by a system of feudal serfdom. But how fast this process took place is unclear. It is also unclear how the system worked in the parts of Germany that had never been under Roman rule. There were slaves there, mainly captured from the Slavic lands, but those were allegedly sold to Byzantium or the Islamic Caliphate. But again, the logistics and the proportions of that are unclear. We will look at the life of the common people a lot more when we get into times with more data. In particular, I will spend much more on the topic when we get to the 13th and 14th century and talk about the great trading cities such as the Hanse, but also Augsburg, Nuremberg and Cologne. We will certainly discuss the situation of the peasants in a lot more detail when we get first to the Black Death and then the Peasants' War of 1525. Now from Alex Swoboda. You have skipped over the Babenberger family, who had an important position since at least the 9th century, and ruled the Eastern Marches, which later became Austria. Alex, I am so sorry. You have reminded me several times and I have not responded. The problem is that there are already quite a lot of individuals and families appearing in the narrative. I try to keep things as tight as possible to make it easier for people to follow. As a consequence, a number of significant families had not yet been mentioned, like the Welfs or the Obertinger. The underlying logic was to introduce members of future ruling dynasties as soon as they take some sort of material role. 
That is why you have heard about the Luxembourgers and the Habsburgs, as well as the ancestors of the Salians already. For families that are powerful, but will ultimately not create any of the big German principalities, like the Zeringer or the Hohenlohe, I'm inclined to leave them well alone. The Babenbergers are a bit of a halfway house insofar as they help create Austria, but are ultimately ousted in a clever move by the Habsburgs. But because they're fun, here is the Babenberger story. The Babenberger go back to a certain Robert of Hesbe, who is also the ancestor of Hugh Capet, and thereby the ancestor of all French kings. Babenberg refers to a hill and a castle we now know as Bamberg. They came to prominence in the 890s to 900s thanks to the Babenberg feud, where they collided with the strengthening Conradina family. They fought valiantly, but ultimately lost their possessions and influence in Franconia. In 972, a member of the Babenberger family, a certain Luitpold, was granted the eastern marches, the borderlands with the Hungarians. These lands were in dire straits when Luitpold arrived. During the time of the Magyar raids, this was a buffer zone, which was sparsely inhabited and had barely any infrastructure. Luitpold and then his son, Markgraf Henry I, rebuilt the county almost from scratch into an increasingly significant economic and political entity. In 996, for the first time, it was mentioned in a document in its ultimate name, Osterichi, or Austria. The Babenbergers were able to expand their territory all the way through the 11th, 12th and 13th century. They founded monasteries like Kloster Neuburg and did what magnates at this time usually did, which was fighting their neighbours, or the king, or both, or going on crusade. The most famous was Leopold, by now promoted from Markgraf to Duke of Austria, who captured Richard the Lionheart on his way back from the crusades, because he had a quarrel with him, and then sold him later on to the emperor Henry V. The dynasty peaked under Leopold IV, named the Glorious for his cultural achievements. He turned his capital Vienna into a center of German culture and a favorite court for troubadours from across Europe. His son Duke Frederick II was a more belligerent man who constantly fought with the kings of Bohemia and Hungary as well as with the Emperor Frederick II. We'll probably get to talk about him when we talk about Frederick II at the end of the Staufe. Now that Duke Frederick II of Austria, he oppressed his peoples and nearly lost the duchy. When he died childless, the Babenbergers went extinct in the male line. Various husbands of Babenberger ladies attempted to get hold of the duchy, but in the end, the German king, Rudolf of Habsburg, despite having no valid claim whatsoever, simply confiscated the duchy for himself. Now the next couple of questions are really around language and I've pulled them all together. So, so there's one, what language would have commonly been spoken at the time? Then there's a question from LBY. If the French and the Germans sprouted from the same line, how come their languages are so different? Then there's a question from Lawrence Coupland. Did the Lotharingians speak Old French or Old German or were they mixed? And what about the early pre-Prussians? Let me start by saying that I'm no linguist and my understanding of these things is sketchy at best. 
I also struggle with all these language theories because there's only very little written down in the language that people spoke before the 12th century. Almost all documentation we have from the 10th century has been written in Latin. Latin was the language of the intellectual used to communicate across Western Europe and some learned Greek either because they lived in Byzantine-controlled southern Italy or because they wanted to communicate with the court in Constantinople. The non-intellectuals, which include some of the rulers, namely Henry the Fowler and probably Otto the Great, spoke local languages. Initially, each of the major German stems had their own languages or dialects, that means the Franks, the Swabians, or Aleman as they were also called, the Bavarians and the Saxons. These languages dialects may have been similar enough that people could sort of understand each other. These different then languages and dialects plus the language of the Lombards gradually merged into Althochdeutsch or Old High German between the 7th and the 9th century. There are 8th and 9th century documents claiming people spoke German. Though if you see the difference in dialects between different parts of Germany that we still have today, I doubt that Old High German was a consistent language easily understood and spoken by everyone. Ultimately, we do not know, since there was very little of that language that ever been written down. If we go to the more peripheral parts of the empire, the picture is a bit muddled. Italy is comparatively simple in that context, as much of the Germanic language of the Lombards had pretty much died out by the 10th century and replaced by Italianate languages. I read up a bit about these and I find that very confusing since the concept seems to be that these languages were sister languages to actually Italian which took over horizontally. Not sure, not my territory. My understanding and development of the French language is even sketchier. As I mentioned in the prologues, one of the smart moves of the Merovingians was that they converted to the Catholic faith instead of Arianism otherwise popular amongst Germanic tribes. That allowed them to integrate with the local Romanized population since the 6th century who spoke Latin, or a vulgar form of Latin. The law of large numbers and mothers spending more time with children than husbands meant that the relatively small group of Germanic invaders learned the Romanesque language of their wives and serfs, even though the upper aristocracy still spoke Old Frankish into the 9th century. The net effect was that in northern France, the Old French was a combination of 85% Latin and 15% Germanic, whilst the southern parts of France spoke Occitan, a much more Romanesque language with a lot less German in it. Now the Old Kingdom of Lothar, so that's Lotharingia, Burgundy and Italy, is not only a mix of geography but also a mix of languages. There's no way I can trace all that back, but if you look at the languages spoken in that area today, you start with Provençal, an Occitan language spoken in Provence and up the Rhone Valley. Further north, you have the actual border regions that stretch all the way from western Switzerland through Alsace-Lorraine to Belgium and the Netherlands. People in these regions would have spoken either derivations of Northern French or German. Most likely, they were bilingual in both dialects as people in Switzerland, Alsace, Lorraine, Luxembourg and Belgium still are today. The further north you go, you get more Old Dutch and Old Frisian languages also into the mix. I mean, it was a border area where ownership changed hands often and economic and family links crisscrossed language borders. 
language I hardly ever mentioned in the sources I read. But it appeared once when Widukind described the Battle of Burton. In the midst of the fighting, the soldiers of Otto the Great started to shout, Fall back! Fall back! in French, or whatever it was called at the time, which the Lothringian troops of Duke Gilbert believed to have come from their own side, which means that obviously they believed the Saxon bodyguards of Otto the Great would only ever speak German. As for the people living on or over the eastern frontier, they spoke Slavic languages. Given the huge rift in terms of culture and religion and the constant killing and enslaving meant that the two sides probably did not mix much, neither economically, nor socially, nor in terms of language. The Bohemians were the odd ones out, inasmuch as they were part of the empire, but spoke a Slavic language. Now we come to the last section, which is German history more broadly. And we start with a question from Bill Dorman. Who are the Germans? Or to what extent is German a single, stable, sociolinguistic entity? Or how have the notions of Germanness been constructed and articulated during the periods covered in your podcast? This is probably the biggest question of them all. There's a legal definition who is and who is not German today, but I guess that's not really the answer you were after. As far as the 10th century is concerned, we should not apply our notions of nationality to these times. Reading through the primary sources, in particular Wiedekind and Tietmar, the way they described themselves and their own identity is tied up much more with their stem duchy, in their case Saxon, their family, and very importantly the religious institutions they are part of, i.e. the monastery of Corvey and the bishopric of Merseburg, respectively. Did they also see themselves having a German identity, as different from the other parts of the empire? Yeah, probably do. Tietmar makes no secret of his disdain for the false and untrustworthy Italians. But how significant as a component of their personality is the Germanness? Probably well below their identity as churchmen and members of an aristocratic clan. If you look at the aristocratic leaders of the time, their actions betray only very occasionally a sign of emerging national sentiment. They are happy to forge alliances with foreign and inverted comma rulers to achieve their domestic goals. One of the few incidents that might betray a national sentiment was when the Saxon nobles rejected Henry the Qualsom's demand to become king as they felt uneasy about handing over Lothringia to King Lothar of France as a compensation. That being said, national sentiment is probably more intense than it was, say, 200 years earlier, so in the 800s. In the period of Charlemagne, the high aristocrats would happily move between what is now France, Italy and Germany, having personal possessions in all of these, alongside the royal lands they were controlling on account of their respective offices. Now, by the 10th century, that had stopped, probably less because of a cultural gap, but more because the logistics of dealing with multiple overlords became too complex. If you have to offer feudal obligations to the King of France, the Duke of Spoleto and the King of East Francia, things can get quite messy. As for the man on the not-yet-existing street, there is nothing to go on. People may have travelled more than we previously believed, but whether that meant they developed their own German identity, I doubt it. This is a question from BM. Is it time to celebrate Germany and German history? 
I'm not a fan of celebrating history. Always ends up with a pissing contest where one side believes to have a better history than the other. So, no celebration in my view. However, I think today is a time to engage with history, maybe even more than at any previous period in my lifetime. Historical arguments are constantly used and abused in the political discourse, whilst at the same time behaviour patterns and communication styles appear that hark back to the darkest of times. When I read the words enemy of the people as a headline in a newspaper, that is a kind of celebration of national identity that gives me cold sweat running down my back. Here's a question from Tyrant Fish. In recent times, much history has been scrutinized for racism. Has the history of Germany been successfully denazified? Can the reprocessing of Nazi Germany be seen as a precursor to what other countries need to do? Thanks. That is the other really big one. Do I think we have successfully denazified? Well, for that to be true, Germany would need to be a place where there is no Nazi or other anti-democratic politician who could gain support. Now, that's quite obviously not the case. So the answer is no. Do I feel that Germany has done a lot more than other countries confronting its history? I would say yes. I cannot think of a country that puts a monument to its abject moral failure into the heart of its capital, like Germany does. One of my favorite projects in that context are the Stolpersteine in Berlin. These are small concrete squares that are put into the pavement, standing a little bit up from the surface. They are put in front of the last known freely chosen address of people who had been persecuted by the Nazi regime. The concrete square is covered with a plaque describing the person and what happened to him or her. These stones are so small that people would inadvertently stumble over them and get reminded of what had happened in their neighborhood in their city. Do other countries have to do the same? Well, that's not for me to say. There's also no point in forcing people to go through such a process. Germany did actually underwent a denazification process right after the war, which pretty comprehensively failed. I mean, the absolute top of the Nazi elite and a few randomly chosen murderers were executed or imprisoned in the Nuremberg trials, but the vast majority of supporters of the regime, including many perpetrators of crimes against humanity, remained untouched. Denazification, or whatever you know, would, would call that process, really happened in the 1960s and 1970s, and it happened because the young were asking their fathers and grandfathers about their individual role during the Nazi regime. That was a personal and a painful process, but one I still feel was very much worth it. That is harder to replicate when it comes to actions that have taken place a long time ago, even if they still reverberate through today's society. But even in these situations, an open discussion and a willingness to confront the failings of your forefathers is key. The second learning from the German experience is that you cannot ask for absolution or forgiveness ever. There are things that cannot be forgiven. They can only ever be understood. What is much more important is finding a way to live together again and to learn to fight the remaining or returning signs of evil. Or as the Germans say, Wehret den Anfängen. 
So, these are all the questions I saw. If I missed one, I do apologize. I did not really organize this process particularly well. Now that really is also the end of the Ottonians. We will start with the Salians on July 8th and I will try to get back into the weekly rhythm. It will be great. We will see both the peak of early medieval empire under Henry III as well as the great pivotal moment of German history when his son, Emperor Henry IV, finds himself kneeling in the snow outside the castle of Canossa, begging the Pope to accept him back into the bosom of the church. I hope to see you then.